discussion of session we are gonna listen is about exotropia. Moderators are Jonathan Olbs and Shira Robbins from United States of America, and the speakers are Mauro Goldschmidt from Brazil, Kimberly Tan from Australia, Jun Ongli from China, Kali Arnoldi from USA, and Ha-Heng Jin Lee from South Korea. Mauro is speaking about managing of Turner palsy, and Kimberly about managing of consecutive exotropia, Junong about managing a very large exotropia, Kali about non-surgical management of exotropia, and Ha-Heng Jin about management of intermittent exotropia. Great. Well, uh, welcome uh, back to the discussion now of these uh, great papers. Um, I'm going to start with um, our first speaker, uh, Maro. Can you just um, make a few comments about your tips for the split lateral transposition? Because I think that more and more of us are doing that um, in contrast to uh, periosteal uh, fixation. Can you share with the group um, how you approach that? Thank you, Jonathan, for this question. Uh, first, I would uh, uh, select the, the, the patient, not uh, knowing that he has a third nerve palsy, but um, uh, we have uh, heard about some uh, complications after this procedure that uh, made me now decide to perform it mostly on amblyopic patients. Uh, the, the tips are that you have to uh, divide the lateral rectus the most posterior as possible. Uh, I, I didn't perform the inferior oblique uh, myectomy and superior oblique tenotomy on my cases. I didn't uh, feel that it was uh, necessary, but uh, it seems to be something uh, that one has to take in, in, in mind. Uh, this possibility. So the, the the other tip is that I had to stop one of my procedures because I didn't realize I was doing it in a very high myopic eye. And this is quite difficult to transpose the, the lateral rectus. So I think that the main tip is to make a large div division of the lateral rectus, the most, most posterior, uh, and have the, the, the hook with the, that hole on, the, uh, uh, on it, so you can pass the, the, the sutures through this hole to, in order to bring the, the, the lateral rectus to the medial side. Right, yeah, no, thanks for those comments. Um, um, my personal experience has been that um, when you start doing these, you don't split exactly as you say, you don't split the lateral rectus far enough, and so for people starting this, I would say that it's helpful to um, have a plastic to ruler so you can actually measure. Because the first one I did, I split at 20 millimeters, and I thought that was far enough, but I really needed to split it more than 25 millimeters just to give you some idea as to how far to, uh, to, to split it. So splitting the lateral, splitting the lateral rectus at least 25 millimeters is needed. Um, as you mentioned, um, there still is some debate on uh, whether to weaken the obliques uh, simultaneously. I personally do that because the tertiary action of the obliques is to abduct the, the eye. 
My, my personally, I uh, like to do an inferior oblique um, myectomy, and I actually uh, do a very large recession of the superior oblique because I'm always worried that if I do a tenectomy, I'm going to need that superior oblique potentially in a future surgery to address uh, torsion. So my personal pre preference is to recess it about 10 millimeters nasal and 10 millimeters posterior to the superior um, rectus so that it's well out of the way of the transposed uh, arms. So those were great comments. Uh, let me move to Dr. Tan and ask him about um, his personal target angle. He uh, presented some studies from the, the, the literature um, in terms of addressing consecutive uh, exotropia. Um, have you over the years come down to your own personal uh, target? And then a secondary follow-up question would be, um, do you use adjustable sutures to achieve that target? And at what age do you start using adjustable sutures? Thanks, Jonathan. Um, uh, yeah, do, I'll, I'll keep it short and simple. First of all, the target angle, uh, maybe it's a... Um, uh, Australian origin, but I, I follow Glenn Gold's original paper for a, um, a small target originally. Um, as you know, most of the problem with these cases, you um, uh, most of them are not yours to start with. They're somebody else's isotropic surgery. So the surprise is what you're going to find. And I think, again, I think I've already referenced three of your papers, Jonathan, but another one about the difficulties about uh, defining the uh, the media rectus scar itself, whether it's truly slipped or stretched. Um, and I, I think that's a, um, a recurring theme. You, get, you often get a surprise, and so you're adjusting your, um, your plan intraoperatively. The, um, um, uh, the use of adjustables I, I use as much as possible, which is interesting because I, um, Glenn's paper emphasised that, but through the through the... Um, the last sort of series of papers, um, it's quite variable in the literature. Um, I, uh, I start as young as the patient will let you. So I, I think my youngest um, is about 12, but that would not be the norm for me. I normally find it's much older than that. And um, my preoperative assessment defines whether a patient's going to faint on me or, be, or, or resist the adjustment. Um, I can't remember if you had a third question. Sorry, what was the when you one? said small esotropia? Can you give us a, yeah. a, a number? Uh, Are you talking four, six, eight? I don't, uh, that range. So between uh, five and ten. Uh, I think that what I was trying to make a point in my last slide is that uh, I think a lot of patients I find don't like. Oh, oh, there's, there's obviously the problem with giving them diplopia, but that's not that common given their original problem. Um, but a lot of patients don't like any sustained esotropia, I find, appearance cosmetically. Um, uh, so if, they can, if you can put them in that small range, I, I think I get nervous any, any bigger than that. And as I emphasise, there's plenty of, um, from Glenn's paper and your paper, there's plenty of surprises to an esotropia drift as well as the exotropia. So I think we're limited by how much um, overcorrection you can do in that early phase by those two factors. Um, the um, the last point was I, I do I still use absorbable sutures too when I when I advance the meterectus. Um, I, I have occasionally used non-absorbable sutures, but I haven't taken up the. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm not convinced that that's a, that's a definite pathway for the for the first time you redo these patients. These patients. Great. No, thanks very much for those comments. Um, maybe I can follow up with Dr. Uh, Jung Hong Lee regarding 
per target angle, she said uh, you use Dr. Lee adjustable sutures. Do you set your large angle exotropic patients with a small esotropia or do you aim for orthotropia on your large angle? I think you're on mute. Actually, thank you. Uh, actually, we perform surgery. Uh, after surgery, uh, we use the just procedure on the table uh, and uh, in, on the medial rectus is the restriction. Um, and uh, most of the patients, uh, um, actually a little bit under correction. Maybe in the lecture, I, I, I made a mistake. Actually, it's the exotropia, minus five for near and minus two for distance, not isotropia. So I found the mistake, yeah. So it's not isotropia, not overcorrection. Maybe a little bit under correction. Okay, thank you. Um... We have a couple of questions from the audience, Dr. Holmes. Uh, we yeah. have Go some... ahead, Dr. Robbins. We have someone asking Dr. Lee, do you practice an accommodative therapy before the surgery for all of your patients? No, no, no. Uh, because we, uh, we didn't uh, focus on the uh, over, uh, later overcorrection until the last six patients. So it's a limited of our study. Thank you. And I just want to clarify that the hook that Dr. Goldschmidt mentioned with the Hole in the end, uh, at least in this country, we call it the gas hook, named after Dr. Donald Gas, G-A-S-S. And we have a second question from the audience looking, talking about delayed adjustable sutures. They say that they find waiting to adjust, especially in re-ops, really helps as the deviation changes so much early on. Has anyone else used that approach? Well, I certainly use that approach since uh, I'm a big proponent of delayed adjustable sutures, but let's hear from our panel. Does anyone else use delayed adjustables as opposed to adjusting on the operative day? Sounds not. Sounds like the San Diego approach, doesn't it? <laughs> and, and our audience member, but I'm not sure where they're from. Okay, thank you, Dr. Holmes. Take it away. Okay, thanks. Uh, uh, maybe Kyle, we can ask you about um, suppression. And um, I totally agree that one of our concerns as a community is that perhaps by observing some of these children with intermittent exotropia that we're allowing them to develop suppression. And I think that we clearly need follow-up studies on that that are carefully assessed, but that turns us to the assessment of suppression. Can you just walk us through how you quantify suppression in your practice um, and how you use that as a decision to intervene or not? Right. So. <clears throat> As with, I, I think most of us, I do monitor um, stereoacuity, which gives me indirectly some information about suppression. But I quantify suppression. I use a red filter bar. Um, and I find that this is something that I can use even on younger children because I don't necessarily need them to tell me they see double. I can watch their eyes and see when they break fusion. Uh, and in this way, I can keep it quantified. So this is all very subjective. 
you know, this is um, difficult to study and I'm not aware of any protocol. So this is what I do. I will, um, usually I will find some suppression by the time the patient gets to me. The red filter bar is divided into 15 different filters of, of you know, graded in, in uh, the density or the luminance. And once I get somewhere near the middle of the bar, so if I'm, if I'm measuring suppression um, and they, I am breaking through their suppression um, with uh, somewhere middle of the way, six, seven, eight, those filters in there, that's when, uh, and above, that's when I become concerned that the suppression is deep enough that we're going to have a problem postoperatively. Um, I, you know, treating suppression is, is a tricky thing. And uh, this is not something that I advocate preoperatively, interestingly, other than doing it passively with something like uh, alternate occlusion. Uh, but postoperatively, I think this may be the time to try to get after that suppression. What I'd like to know is if anyone has a great method that can treat the suppression that occurs in the uh, temporal retina periphery while not treating suppression that includes the fovea, because that's where I think we have a danger in creating the intractable diplopia. Um, I've had some patients with, uh, who have on their own gone through some anti-suppression exercises, some adult patients who have sought out various uh, therapies. And I have seen them reduce their suppression to the point where, again, using the red filter bar, I was breaking through their suppression with filter number one, two, three, something right at the beginning of the bar. And they do complain of double vision under certain lighting conditions. So even though I think that this is an important clue to long-term uh, correction of these deviations, uh, I think we have to approach it with caution. Great. And maybe I can connect that to our last speaker, uh, Dr. Hang Jing Li. She also mentioned worsening suppression. So that raised the question in my mind, do, do you measure uh, suppression in a specific way, and can you share that with uh, with the group? Actually, thank you for the comment. I always do I check the stereopsis, and as I, Dr. Arnold said, I use the red filters, but it's very difficult to apply to all the children age of three or four years old. So, uh, however, when available, we also check the suppression as well, yes. But there is not um, no special tips for the children. Yes. <laughs> and then a question to still to Dr. Lee about her um, plication studies, which I thought were very interesting. Was were you using the same uh, doses on your plications that you were for uh, the resections? And also, were you using uh, vital sutures? Were you taking scleral bites um, in front of the muscle? Can you just say a little bit about the application technique that you were using in your studies? Okay, thank you. Well, when we first did application and we did the same doses as the same amount for the resection. And then after surgery, we experienced a slight different trend in the angle of deviation with the 
resections um, actually under correction in the early phase after the application. So therefore, it decided to increase the surgical amount. And um, the surgical dosage was augmented by one or 1.5 millimeters over the original um, surgical dose of a resection. And after that, we uh, could achieve uh, about 10 or 10, 15 prism diopters of a correction after one week. And so we do that. And the second point is that we have to fix the um, application suture to the sclera very tightly. That is very important point, we think. And um, however, um, I think that the operation is a strabism is very complex issue and often needs to be individualized. So we have to um, increase the dose depending on the patient's characteristics. And overall, we increase the application dose instead um, compared to the resection. Yes. Great. Um, Shira, are you seeing any questions from the audience? Uh, I'm not seeing them on my screen. I, I don't, but I have a ton of questions jumbling around in my brain, but I would love to jump on as we're waiting for our audience members to please, please send us additional questions so we can answer what's on your mind, not just on my mind. But um, I'm going to pick on Dr. Hung Jin Lee again. And I want you to talk a little bit more about the plications because oftentimes with the XTs, we also have um, verticals associated with the alphabet pattern. So if you're going to transpose vertically with a plication, I know that some people do that. And uh, I, I've heard a lot of people talking about how this goes great. And I, I would love to hear from you if you've done that and uh, how it works. Um, actually, <laughs> we did not application in the transposition patients. So, well, but um, theoretically, we think that we didn't have any patient in the case such cases with AV or pectoral. But mm -hmm. um, we think that uh, if we do the application in the transposition patients, and if if that could work, but sadly we did not have any experience for that. So we, I can talk more detail, yes. Okay, maybe we can ask that same question to some of our other panelists. Dr. Goldschmidt, you've been quiet for a while. Have you done one of those? No, I haven't done this publication, no. Okay. But, I, I, but, but my question to Dr. Lee is uh, on this very large exotropia, why did she choose to operate on three muscles and not on four muscles? instead of doing so large uh, recession and resection, spread the, the millimeters into more muscles? Thank you. Actually, uh, at the beginning, we formed four muscles. But for some patients, uh, under correction, we cannot do any, uh, any uh, cannot do analysis. Uh, so we don't have choice. Four muscles were performed all, uh, already. So uh, I think maybe we can choose another one, three muscles to try with uh, it's my study. I think uh, one very, thing that's very impressive asked, results. Very yeah. impressive results. One thing related to that is the measurement of those angles. Um, mm -hmm. I haven't yet found a supplier, and maybe uh, Kyle and Shira can help me here in the US, but I, I have not found those very, very large 
uh, prism diopter uh, prisms greater than 50 yet in the, in the, U, in the US. Ky Kyle, are you aware of those? Not here. Sorry. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I have, I have not found them. Um, you know, I just have the standard prisms. Does someone else have a comment? Uh, Maybe we should have uh, Dr. Uh, Jung Hong Lee uh, type in the chat the supplier so that so that some of us can actually find those or acquire those prisms to help us. Because I know that you know typically we hold up two fifties, one on each eye, and when it's over a hundred, we write down greater than a hundred. And so the ability to quantify uh, deviations over a hundred would certainly help us in these types of cases. Sorry, sorry, okay, sorry, okay. That's a great idea. We do have a couple of housekeeping items that I wanted to mention here. Of course, the um, content that you're viewing today will be available to all delegates until December 31st of this year. And everyone who has signed up for this conference will get a free book on OCT by Dr. Nischel. Uh, membership, of course, to the World Society is free, and there are lots of great benefits, including a free issue to the Journal of Binocular Vision and Ocular Motility, who our editor, Dr. Uh, excuse me, orthoptist Kyle Arnaldi, uh, is uh, very involved with there. Um, the season three of the WSPOS webinars will begin soon, coming in October, and there are so many benefits to being a member I just, uh, I could go on and on here, but I did want to get that in before our time is up. Dr. Holmes, any other remarks? I think that we've hit the bottom of the hour. This was a really superb uh, symposium. Thank you to all the speakers for really fantastic talks. Uh, thank you for comments, questions, and uh, have a great rest of the conference. Thank you all. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you. Thank you. now some messages to take home uh, about the uh, session on uh, and discussion on exotropia. Uh, Mauro Goldschmidt uh, um, talked about the managing of ternary palsy and um, we can say that uh, uh, transposition of lateral uh, rectus muscle is, uh, is, is, is good technique but it's important to select the patients and it suggests to operate just on amblyopic eye first and second it's very important to split the lateral rectus as much as possible about 25 millimeters and the technique is very difficult although impossible on high myopic eye uh, about Kimberly 10 uh, on ma managing of um, consecutive uh, exotropia, uh, he used adjustable uh, sutures as much as possible. The youngest patient uh, had mm, was uh, um, 12 years old, and uh, his targeted angle is a small isotropia uh, about 510 of isotropia. And Junong Lee. 
um, talked about the managing of very large uh, exotropia. He also uh, use uh, she also use uh, um, adjustable uh, suture uh, on the table on media rectus and uh, she aimed for uh, under correction. Um, talking about the, um, the suppression quantification uh, and evaluation, um, Cagliarnoldi uh, suggests that uh, um, it's, uh, there is a, an indirect evaluation of suppression uh, just measuring the stereo equity of the patient. This is very important and quantification of suppression can be done with the red filter bar. And also it's uh, very important, it's another message very important, is that treating suppression is tricky, is a tricky thing. And if you treat as a scotoma uh, that involve the fovea, that could be very dangerous because this can create untractable uh, uh, diplopia. And uh, Hengjin Li uh, talked about the management of intermittent uh, uh, exotropia, and she also used stereopsis as a, an indirect measures of uh, um, uh, uh, suppression and also the red filter bar to quantify suppression. And uh, uh, she uh, talked about the, the implication of the medial rectus in these patients, and she suggests to augment the, the dosage, the amount of application by one 1.5 millimeters uh, uh, respect to the uh, resection numbers. And uh, uh, also she uh, suggests to fix the muscle tightly on the uh, scleral with a good scleral bite. Thank you.